0: Monday, February 7th, and February is National Children's Dental Health Month. And who better to talk about that than Dr. Bernice Shafarek from Shafarek Dental in Columbia. Bernice, good morning. Thanks for stopping by today. And what should we know about children's dental health this month?
1: So um, we definitely do this as a yearly um, event where I discuss the updates and. And children's dental health, and unfortunately, there's still a big problem with decay in the age group of two to five years old with kids. And I was thinking about what um, that concept of you know it takes a village, and there are a lot of issues why there are some kids who end up in a situation that's very sad that they end up with lots of decay. And there's also been changes during COVID as there are to uh, every single aspect of our lives, it seems. So statistically, um, preventive techniques, including coming to your dental visit, are down. So kids are, uh, they've decreased vaccinations by 22%. So that was one sad statistic, and of course we all know it's partially because of access and difficulty getting in and exposures, canceling appointments, Um, but an even more striking statistic is that decay in children has increased by 66%. Now, all of this data was actually taken from a Medicaid population, but um, it's interesting that the article that I was reading was discussing some of the changes. And one change that is tougher with kids right away is, you know, we're all masked. The kids walk in the office and you take their temperature. And she was talking in the article about how one young young nine-year-old said, you know, that feels like a weapon that you're pointing at my forehead. And so there's there's a lot of things that... We have all had to adapt to, but I think it's important to remember that our kids are the most vulnerable, and they haven't had as much experience in life changes and disruption as we have had as adults, so we need to really be be aware of that.
0: Do you feel that children wearing masks has any impact at all on their dental health? By that, I mean they're recycling some of the air they're breathing out, that normally would have got out of the atmosphere. Is there any connection there between perhaps decline in dental health and the more wearing of masks lately?
1: So what we'll um, talk about that we've talked about in the past is one of the most important things in life to develop normally and healthy is nasal breathing. And for some reason, people seem to breathe more through their mouths when they're wearing a mask. And I believe that could be because if there is any nasal obstruction or allergies or things like that, then once you put the mask on, people feel more inclined to mouth-breathe instead of nose-breathe. And that leads to a whole host of problems, including increased dryness in your mouth. And when your mouth is dry and the saliva is not flowing, you don't have that natural protection against decay. So that's a major thing that happened, and it's happening in adults and in kids. So that's that um, association. And then the other thing with COVID is prices have gone up for groceries, and the accessibility to things is less than it used to be. Um, I was speaking to a young woman who has a lot of allergies and difficulties with her skin, so she tends to wash with distilled water. And she went to three different stores to get distilled water and couldn't find it. So all of those supply chain issues are affecting every aspect of our lives.
0: Tell me more about this distilled water concept. Is that something that we should all do, or is that just unique to her situation?
1: unique to her situation and it's also I'm not even sure if there's any uh, any uh, scientific evidence behind that it's just you know I think there's a certain amount of people in our population who have pretty severe allergies and when they're uncomfortable with a lot of different things they just reach out for whatever seems to work in their situation so that's where that comes from the other thing that happened during COVID is February's Dental Children's Health Month and there used to be a lot of activities around that and the whole concept was called Give Kids a Smile. So there were offices that ha- would have events where kids could get free dental care if they needed it and Mission of Mercy, which I had been involved in a lot in the past, again, wasn't able to be held because it's a large gathering, and it's, it was too difficult to try to make sure that we could provide safe care during during the pandemic. So it was interesting to read about how things have changed. And, you know, we'll talk about oral habits and making sure that certain things are being done. When life is disrupted, it just throws everything off. So for the kids who were a little bit older, all of a sudden they didn't have their normal routine. So maybe they always went to bed at a certain time because they had to get on the bus. And now, you know, during COVID, they were doing things remotely. So then you didn't have to have that same routine. So even things like brushing, flossing, when it was your routine to do that, got disrupted during COVID. And I want to seem negative at all about the impact it's had, I think awareness is just so important that, you know, now as hopefully things will get a little more normal, we have to get back into our routines. We have to take care of our kids.
0: And Bernice moments ago was talking about the importance of nasal breathing. We did a whole show on that last month, so that's a big deal that uh, people should be thinking of and be aware of. She talked about that a month ago. Now, as far as Children's Dental Health Month, February is concerned. How about the timing? Age of the first visit. When should a child first see the dentist?
1: So it still surprises people to hear that you really should take your child for a dental visit starting age one. Now, your options are to go to a pediatric dentist or to go to a general dentist who's comfortable treating children. What has happened in my practice that has actually been kind of fun since I've been in the same office for 35 years, um, I now have situations where I have grandchildren of existing patients, and a lot of those people are very comfortable bringing their children here, and that's that's so important because the first visit, you know, you're not going to do be able to do a whole lot on a one-year-old, but there's a whole lot of discussions that can happen, and talking about things like nasal breathing and whether you're hearing any changes in snoring with your child, are their teeth coming in normally? You know, there's certain, by age one, there's a certain amount of teeth that should be present in your mouth. Is that happening the way it should? Does your child have any habits that we need to be aware of? Um, things like dietary discussions that are so important I was at a uh, military event in Massachusetts and had the occasion to speak to two different people who work with the pediatric population. One of them was a dentist in Nashua, New Hampshire, and she was telling me about the access to care issue. And you know, in the old days when I was growing up, we actually had a hygienist that came to the school and a dentist, and that's. Very easy way to be able to cater to a population that might not be able to get care otherwise. So she was telling me the sad story of a seven year old young girl who was having a lot of trouble in school and she was being disruptive and, and she wasn't doing well and had failing grades, and someone realized that they needed to look at her mouth. So the school nurse looked in her mouth and saw that she had a lot of decay. So once they fixed her teeth, all of a sudden she became an A student. So one, it can make a huge impact. And two, how sad is that, that there's this young seven-year-old in pain? So of course that led to the discussion of, you know, why wasn't she getting dental care? And, you know, there's, in order to get, Dental care, even if you know where you can go, you need to get yourself there. And she said this particular situation, she had parents who had emigrated from China, and they were actually only had one car, which the one parent would take to, into Boston to work and was there very long hours, so they didn't have a car to get her to her dental appointments. So when I say, you know, it takes a village, and we'll talk probably later about my Seroptimus charitable group, those are the kind of things we've looked at to try to get some funding for things like that.
0: We've been talking this morning, Bernice, about children having their first dental visits. You talked about one year old, a good time to see the dentist for the first time. What would be the frequency? How often then should the kids go to see the dentist?
1: So we do recommend um, dental visits every six months, um, and I'll just uh, talk a little bit about baby teeth because that always seems to come up. Baby teeth are really important. They're not to be ignored just because they'll end up falling out. They play a role in helping kids to be able to speak and eat normally, but they also are space holders for the teeth that are underneath So there's a normal sequence of how teeth fall out so that there's room for the new permanent tooth that's coming in. So when we start the dental visits, um, we do make a determination based on each child's situation of when x-rays are necessary. And there are times when we have no choice. We really need to take x-rays because, as my son tells me, too bad you don't have x-ray vision, Mom, because then you wouldn't have to do x-rays. But we do need the x-rays. Yeah, but he does
0: think you're superwoman, though.
1: <laughs> he does. So um, the one, one thing that we can see, among others, on the x-ray that's called the panorax, and that's the one <clears throat> where the machine kind of goes all the way around your head. And the good thing about the panorax is it's not hard to get kids to cooperate with that because... They just bite down on a little area and the machine goes around them, so it's a little easier than the conventional x-rays that we do. There's a need for those in certain situations also, but the Panorex x-ray is great because it can show us, let's say a child is six or seven years old, you'll see a lot of the baby teeth, but underneath you'll see the permanent teeth growing in, And you can tell at that point whether all of those teeth are present or not. And if they're not present, you can plan ahead for that because they all are necessary.
0: Seems like some kids are prone to having dental issues. A friend of mine named Noah, who's now 12 years old, he's got big-time issues. And I'm wondering if that kind of stuff is or can be hereditary. If... The mother or the father has bad teeth, is it going to follow that the child might have bad teeth?
1: So, as in most areas of science and human behavior, it's really hard to separate what's genetic and what's environmental. So, one of the first issues is if you have a parent who has difficulties with their teeth, was that because in their culture, as I've seen, for example, kids were put to bed with uh, a bottle that had some substance that had sugar in it, be it orange juice or tea. If they continue to do that with their own children, then that's going to increase their risk of decay. So that's one thing. Another thing is if the parent had those issues at an early age, there may be some anxiety and stress, and so sometimes it's harder for them to bring that child to the dentist. And there's so many things that our kids can see in us because they're observing us all the time. So, you know, you need to walk walk the talk. So if you're not really brushing and flossing regularly, then your child's going to pick up on that. So those are all the non-hereditary things. If you're asking my personal opinion after... But, you know, almost forty years, including dental school and dentistry. It does appear that there are certain people who will have dental problems, such as decay, regardless of what they're doing. And of course, you know, I depend on what people tell me, and so I will have patients who say you know, I never drink or eat anything acidic or sugary, I don't snack, I don't smoke, I don't drink alcohol, yet they seem to get recurrent decay. So we're always thinking, you know, what is it about your lifestyle that may influence this because, you know, it's a completely preventable disease and so sometimes you need to increase oral hygiene efforts, increase use of fluoride. Because maybe there's not enough fluoride in the water, and that's why they're getting decay. I mean, fluoride was a huge game changer for us. Once it was added to city water, populations where maybe the parents were in a situation where they couldn't provide the ideal diet or they couldn't provide the child with dental visits, decay rates did go down. That being said, there's a certain population that still seems to get a lot of decay, and there are times when it seems to me that it's maybe not hereditary, but genetic. So they basically maybe had some mutation that doesn't kill strep mutans well, because that's the bacteria that causes dental decay. There's, of course, you know, there's always opportunities for research, but dental decay is not... You know, it's not a life-threatening disease, so a lot of the research efforts are not going towards that.
0: By the way, my pal Noah has just begun braces, and plenty of kids who have decent teeth need braces, too. So tell me about the value of that, and maybe what percentage of kids these days do you think need braces? Because there's some I don't think that need them.
1: So why do you think they don't need them?
0: Because their teeth are fairly straight to begin with?
1: Okay, so... Uh, In the general
0: population... Are you saying every kid needs braces?
1: No, I don't say every kid needs braces. I think that there are kids who need braces, and it doesn't have to do with how their teeth look. It has more to do with the position of their teeth. So that leads us into the topic that I actually had later on in my outline, but it's, it's all about creating the ideal atmosphere for... Breathing and swallowing. And the best way to help a child develop so that they don't need braces is to do breastfeeding and to make sure that there's no um, impediment to, uh, no reason why they wouldn't be able to breathe through their nose. Nasal breathing makes a huge difference. So if kids, for example, have large tonsils, or they have allergies, or asthma, or they have a tongue tie, then it's going to change. They're going to become mouth breathers because it's harder for them to breathe through their nose if they have some of those conditions. When you stop breathing through your nose, in order to be able to breathe through your mouth, which you're really not supposed to be doing, you have to change the position of your tongue. So if you see a child very young, who either snores, and that doesn't have to be loud snoring. That can just be softer snoring either that indicates mouth breathing. Most often those kids are holding their tongue in the wrong position. So the tongue's role as we grow is to be in a position that fills the palate, the roof of your mouth. Now, in a growing child, if you have that strong muscle, the tongue, seated in the proper position and their cheek muscles are working adequately, which sometimes means not just eating soft things, but fresh vegetables and things that make you chew more and use your muscle, then ideally no child should need braces because if the tongue is in the right position, the teeth will be in the right position and the bone will grow into the right position and they will look straight and healthy. When there's a healthy situation, most often in kids, we do see spaces in between their teeth. That should be normal. So if we see a child who has crowded lower teeth, that means that their tongue is not in the proper position. And as we talked about during our nasal breathing show, the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. And if the roof of the mouth doesn't develop wide and flat enough, then the nose gets narrower and it makes it more difficult to breathe through your nose. So the reasons kids end up with braces are um, crooked teeth. They end up with braces if they have an underbite or an overbite, or they show lots of gum tissue. So some of those conditions The teeth don't look so bad to the observer, but if they're narrowing, so we can look in the mouth with young children even and see if their palate is developing very narrow, that's kind of an alert that we have to get some other providers involved. And my first go-to is, you know, is your child breathing through their nose? And sometimes you can tell during their dental visit because they're fogging your mirror up. If they're not breathing through their nose, there's a good chance that they're not gonna develop the bone wide enough to hold all the teeth in the right place. So if you have the top jaw, the maxilla, is narrower, it doesn't develop as wide as it should, and the lower jaw ends up wider, then kids adapt in different ways. One way is they will um, bring their jaw forward, and that's how you end up with an underbite. When they do that, instead of having the inside cusps, we call them, but basically bumps on the top teeth, hit in the very center of the bottom tooth, which enables it to be a straight soldier, if that's not happening, then teeth can all lean in. Once they lean in, it gives you less room for your tongue and if you're not nose breathing and your mouth breathing you have to do something to help yourself breathe so people accommodate by opening their mouths and breathing and changing the position of their tongue is that too long a complicated answer to your simple question
0: no but it's a definitely in the category of orthodontic intervention. Let me change gears a bit to something you just referenced briefly earlier, and that is your work with the seroptimist of Willimantic, and you've got the big fundraiser coming up, but it's not in March anymore.
1: So we had done the heart-to-heart ball for years, and, um, you know, everybody needs to be safe. So our original thought was, let's move it to May, and we have actually reserved the Elks Club for May fourteenth. As the Omnicrom event happened and COVID became more prevalent, we started thinking about can we do this at all? So we're still reserved for May fourteenth. We still have our same band that and she's great because she actually the leader of the band became a seroptimus after she played at our ball for a while. And she said, you know, as long as you guys don't tell us as we walk through the door that it's canceled then you know we're there so we have a lot of things in place and we're going to have a meeting at the end of february to see what it will be like so it might be more of a carnival we might have some outdoor indoor events we might have to change change up a little bit what we'll do but i can guarantee you that it will be fun and that it will raise funds for needed causes
0: and what's the share the love program
1: uh, the Share the Love program is what we continue to do during COVID. Uh, that we get together and create uh, bags with snacks and and things for uh, workers that have gone above and beyond. So we did school teachers one time. We did uh, healthcare workers another time, and this time they're thinking about. Um, grocery personnel that have to be there no matter what. And so basically, we're just sharing the love of giving them bags of treats to to recognize their their efforts.
0: All that from Dr. Bernice Shafarek, the past governor of the Northeast Region of Soroptimus International of the Americas. Bernice, we earlier talked this morning about preventive techniques, and you did a whole thing on the importance of fluoride. What other protective techniques are used to try to make kids teeth as healthy as possible?
1: Well, another wonderful uh, technique that we have developed are sealants. So basically, there's deep grooves in the biting surfaces of teeth, and the first molar to come in is the six-year molar. So over a lifetime, that's the tooth that we see that will need the most fillings or crowns or root canals or dental treatment. It's been in the mouth for a long time. And that all starts with the deep grooves on the top of the tooth that can catch food. If it doesn't get brushed out well, it creates an acidic environment and decay, and that cycle starts. So we have a process where we can fill those grooves in with sealant material, it's called, and make it a much flatter, easier-to-cleanse surface. And, by design, that's a lot less expensive than doing fillings. So a question that comes up often is, you know, is there insurance coverage? And, as usual, it depends on the particular insurance companies. Um, In the state of Connecticut, the uh, dental coverage for children through the state does cover sealants. And so it's important to... To do sealants, if you can, they're underutilized still. Um, so basically any tooth that has grooves, the back teeth, so those would be, as the kids age, they'll get uh, 12 years, so they have 6-year, 12-year molars, and then the two teeth in front of them that are actually called bicuspids are chewing teeth also, and they have those grooves on the top. So we don't do sealants on the front teeth because they have smooth surfaces, that are much easier to clean. But it's a really simple procedure, and as far as the kids are concerned, their teeth, you know, it might feel a little bit cold, and they have to hold their mouth open for a while, but it's, most kids tolerate it without a problem at all. So once those teeth come in, the molars, and they're in the mouth enough so that you can isolate them and keep them dry, Then sealants are a great, great uh,
0: idea. I know that in the past we've also talked regarding preventive techniques about mouth guards, especially for kids involved in sporting activities. Talk about that the importance of them for those playing sports, and would there be a time when a mouth guard would be important in a non athletic event?
1: So a mouth guard can be helpful in any circumstance where you could end up with trauma to the teeth. So that can be something as simple as, you know, kids riding their bikes outside, and the more rambunctious your child, the more I would uh, consider a mouth guard. When, uh, when my kids were little, uh, especially my two, actually all three of them were were pretty calm kids, you know, they didn't. Jump around a lot and cause a lot of activity. But we had a close friend whose son was the same age as my daughter. You know, at like age one and a half, you know, you turn your head and he was on top of the refrigerator. Or he was walking on the railing of the deck that was like two stories up. And, you know, the mom and me would have a heart attack when I wouldn't watch what he would do. But he also, you know, once he started to ride his bike he was the kid that would you know do wheelies and jump over things so any activity that could potentially harm the teeth so there's some sports where you know they seem more aware of it than others and you know when i ask kids there's a lot of sports where they're not wearing mouth guards and i get it you know there's peer pressure if the other kids aren't wearing them But it would be so important for the coaches out there and the grandparents, you know, sometimes can have a good influence because they're the ones bringing the kids to the games. Over-the-counter mouth guards, you know, they're not super comfortable, but you can heat them up and and put them in the mouth and make them match the shape of the teeth. If you have a child who uh, has all of their permanent dentition at like 12 or 13 and they're not going through braces, then if you know they're gonna be a kid who's gonna be involved in sports a lot, we can make a customized mouse guard. The problem earlier in life is that they're they're changing constantly, so it becomes sometimes cost prohibitive for parents to keep buying mouth guards.
0: I think in my travels in the sports world, Bernice, I may be seeing more mouth guard use than I've ever seen before. And that includes the college level, the high school level in particular, and for that matter, even professional sports. But speaking of professional sports, that You've got these guys, or women, who can become role models. What are your thoughts on a guy like, this is only one of many examples, Steph Curry, one of the greatest players in basketball history, who fiddles around with his mouth guard. He goes to the free throw line, and he takes it out, and he takes it out and hangs it on his lip, and he shoots the free throw, puts it back in. That basketball's been all over the floor, and now he's putting his hands on the mouth guard, putting it back in his mouth. That's not a good idea, is it? Well, so, uh, and the the worst thing that I saw
1: with Steph Curry is the time he took it and he flung it into the, the stands, which was really not something I would recommend.
0: Yeah, you're putting saliva now in the hands of a fan.
1: Yeah, because taking it out and putting it back into his own mouth, the advantage he has is that, he, you know, he has an immune system that's going to help fight that bacteria. But, of course, the bottom line is it's not supposed to be in your hand. It's supposed to be in your mouth. But... The other side of the coin is I kind of like him calling attention to the fact that he's wearing a mouth guard. You know, every time he takes it in and out, then people are sitting there watching him going, oh, yeah, mouth guard. You know, here's a basketball player that I'm sure there's a lot of young kids who would love to be another Steph Curry. But you are so right. You know, it goes in your mouth. And if it's a custom mouth guard, You can make one that fits well enough that it shouldn't be a problem for it to be sitting in your mouth. You know, so he might be a mouth breather, and it's interfering with his mouth breathing. So if I were Steph Curry's provider, I would talk about nasal breathing.
0: Bingo. Now we're talking about children's dental health. This is Children's Dental Health Month during February. What's the role of home care and diet?
1: So that's huge, and to the um grandparents listening out there, you so know if you're taking care of the grandchildren, which I see a lot, especially nowadays, you know with remote working, you know it's really hard if the kids are around to to do your job, don't be that grandparent that's constantly buying them snacks because you're really making it difficult for the parents so you know, snacking is okay but it should be done in moderation and um, as I was preparing for this show I was talking to one of my employees who actually worked in a pediatric office for a while and she said that's still a big problem and what people don't realize is even something like goldfish, you know, you think it doesn't have sugar in it but it gets sticky and it sticks to the top surfaces of the teeth which of course again If you want to gift your grandchild something, sealants might be a really good idea um, because it makes that effect lessened of decay on the top of those biting surfaces. But even things like goldfish or potato chips that you think don't have sugar, if they sit there on the teeth, the process in the mouth makes them more acidic and they can cause the same kind of problems. So snacking is best when... You can give them water afterwards, or they get a chance to brush afterwards, which, you know, is not always the case if you're on the way to a game or something like that. But, you know, there are better snacks. So something that doesn't stick is always a much better idea.
0: And the often-talked-about concept, speaking of home care, of flossing, the importance of flossing... First off, the technique that people should use, and secondly, how frequently? So
1: with children, the time to start flossing is when you see teeth that are abutted up right next to each other. So often in a child with a healthy, developing mouth, and that's going to be a nose breather that has a pretty wide palate, you may have spaces in between all of the baby teeth, And if you do, then you really don't need to be flossing because the toothbrush will reach in there. And as we're talking about brushing, for the newborn, the parents with newborns out there, try to get them used to having you in their mouth from an early age. So as soon as, you know, weeks after they're born, you can start just taking a washcloth and wetting it and rubbing their gums And then they'll get used to you being in their mouth. And as soon as they have teeth, that's the time when you need to start brushing. And in general, kids younger than eight are never really going to do a good job brushing their own teeth. So you will make your life easier if you have a child who really has that independent spirit and wants to do things themselves. Try to brush their teeth first. So I've also heard of um, a parent, actually a, a friend of my daughter's, um, she, her technique with her child was she would let her child brush the mom's teeth first, and then she would say, now mommy's going to brush your teeth, so that she could get in there and do a good job, and then let the child brush by themselves. If you let them brush by themselves first, they usually run out of tolerance for you in their mouth pretty quickly. So that's one hint I have out there. And for the under three-year-olds, you should only use about the size of a grain of rice, so like just a little smear of toothpaste. And the reason is you don't want them swallowing it because you want to use a fluoridated toothpaste so my technique when my kids were little was I would, you know, they need to spit out, which is not an easy thing to do, but we would say patooey, and that would automatically kind of make them spit out. But the younger they are, the harder that is. So once they're three to six years, you can use a little bit more toothpaste, but you want to really emphasize that you don't, you should not be swallowing the toothpaste. And the reason I say that is some of the research – that looks at kids that ended up with um, what we call fluorosis. So they had teeth that had um, white spots, or sometimes there were yellow spots, and it was excess fluoride that had been laid down. And most often that came from kids swallowing the toothpaste. And then if you had the appropriate amount of fluoride in your water, all of a sudden you were increasing your intake because you were swallowing the fluoridated toothpaste.
0: In a perfect world, would you prefer that kids decrease their usage of snacks between meals?
1: Yeah, for, you know, for a lot of reasons, but if they're going to snack. and So, you know, there's just so much variation in, in our bodies that you really have to cater to your particular situation. And the reason I say that, for example, I have uh, an employee whose daughter is one of those uh, quick metabolizers, so she needs to be eating frequently, or she's just constantly losing weight. So with it, with that situation, you know, protein shakes might be a good idea, and there's there's so many snack options. There's you know celery with peanut butter or um, carrot sticks. You know, there's a lot of snacks that are not harmful, and you know. It, 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 you also can't be, you know, the Gestapo of their diet, if you know occasional chocolate or something like that is not going to be a problem if in general they have good oral care. So you mentioned flossing, Wayne. Most kids are not ready to floss on their own until they're like eight years old. So we talked about the baby teeth. If the baby teeth are against each other, they're touching each other, then as a parent you do need to be flossing. And the kids have more fun with what are called the, uh, those little flossers. You know, sometimes they'll have them in the shape of animals and they're different colors. And that you can do with one hand. So I would recommend that if your child does have teeth that are abutted right next to each other and you need to floss, that you floss first and then have them give it a try also. But as far as, regular floss and, like, wrapping it around your fingers and getting it into the right spot. The go-to that I've heard over the years that may not work as well anymore but was tying your shoes. You know, once they could tie their own shoes, they probably had the manual dexterity to be able to floss also. But that's also what those regular dental visits are all about. You know, we actually have kids who come in and they have tartar in their mouths, which, you know, you kind of think instinctually – you know, they're so young, why would they have that? There may be an association again, and I you know, hate to keep harping on this, but I think it's so important. If they're mouth-breathing and their mouths are drier, there could be a greater chance of developing tartar. And you can't get that off at home, so that needs to be done by the hygienist, which is why we do need the kids to be coming in regularly.
0: Before we get back to the children's dental health stuff, You had a story, Bernice, about the blizzard of 1978, how it affected you?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, all of us uh, remember that, who were um, around (laughs) for the blizzard. So I actually was um, living in Poland and going to medical school in Poland, and they had two weeks off in February, so I decided to come home for two weeks, and the day after I arrived home, we had this big... Blizzard and they closed the state. And um, so we were living in Hamden, down near New Haven, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, I was a cross-country skier from college, because I went to college in Montreal, so I basically got my cross-country skis out and skied around, but there was just so much snow, and then there was the ice that was encrusted on top of it, that um, my...